Hello everyone, it's March 20th, 2018. This week we do a little probing into a few launch mishaps. We also talk to a mystery guest. Who is it? I honestly have no idea. Only Ben knows. Stay tuned and we'll all find out together and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 150 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. So I still don't know how we're going to name this episode because we kind of have an interview, but it's kind of a spoiler to put it in the title of the show. Oh, yeah, for sure. That negates the whole point of this particular interview. Yeah, so I, I think we're probably just going to like have these be numbered mystery guest segments. What do you think? I think that's a good idea. Well, I guess the listeners don't know what we're talking about, though, the mystery guest segment. So, <laughs> um, which, so I guess that in itself is a mystery. So you'll find out soon enough. <laughs> it's a new thing we're doing, maybe. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was fun. Will will be fun. I think it'll get better. We're working out the bugs. So, uh, so how was your week, David? It was okay. I don't know. How was your week? Oh, pretty okay. I mean, yeah, nothing. One thing um, I guess we'd be remiss to not talk about is uh, Stephen Hawking finally passed away, which is uh, yeah. unfortunate. And just, uh, I guess out of coincidence, just about a week ago or so, I found uh, my copy of A Brief History of Time, which I bought when Mm. I was like 13 years old, and I didn't know I still had it. That book has always stayed with me, and I still, I mean, I can still remember reading it and not really understanding, you know, not really understanding much of it, obviously, Um, but trying really hard and and sometimes thinking that I understood. Um, But it very much was the first book that ever familiarized me with, you know, this whole idea of astrophysics and things of that nature. Cosmology, yeah. Yeah. I think before that, I just never even thought about it. And so, Hmm. which I think is how most people became familiar with Stephen Hawking um, was probably because of that book, either that or the Simpsons episode. (laughs) And he was on an episode of Star Trek, actually. Yep. We lost a good one. We sure did. What if Einstein had written a book like that? Like, it's insane that like one of the smartest people in the history of humanity wrote a a book that anybody can read, you know, like... Oh, and a- another thing that's worth pointing out, um, if you go to curiositystream.com slash Hawking, they are streaming for free the complete series of Stephen Hawking's favorite places until the 23rd. So I think you got another another week to watch these guys. Oh, cool. Um, and they're, I think it's three episodes of like 30 minutes each. An oddly accessible person for how inaccessible he was, you know. Wow. Yeah, that's a good characterization. That's pretty deep. That's pretty profound. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Try it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, let's move on then to this week in spaceflight history. So I see we have some winners, maybe more than a couple here. So this one was way easy, way easier than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. I mean, me too, to be honest. Um, and a lot of people wrote in saying, oh, this is too easy. I'm like, okay, well, good, good for you guys because I wouldn't have gotten it. So our winners this week. First off, uh, Marion in the chat guest during the recording last week. So I got to get that one in first. Then uh, Kieran Thompson, Mark Wilson, Valentin Frank, Gregory Dedalus, Clint Mueller, Anderson DeNova, and Paul Corney. I think Paul is a new name here. So uh, this week in Spaceflight History, the clue was that there was a restaurant in Lake Forest, Illinois, that uh, that I really wish I had gone to and that I never did get to because they closed. And uh, this week in spaceflight history is the 25th of March, 1928. It was the birth of Jim Lovell. So the clue will be at the very end. First, let's talk about some records. Jim Lovell is the first of three people ever, only three people to ever go to the moon twice. And of those three, he's the only one who did not land on the surface. Uh, he's also the first person to reach four space flights, and he held the record of total elapsed time in space 
which was 715 hours, five minutes. Uh, and that record wasn't broken until the Skylab project began. Um, so he was born in Cleveland. He grew up in Indiana and then moved to Wisconsin and actually went to college in Wisconsin. He was a Navy test pilot. Um, he was actually, I didn't realize this, uh, he was actually a candidate for the Mercury program, uh, but he failed to get in due to some blood work. He had one indicator in his, like one chemical in his blood that was too high, like pretty much that day. <laughs> <laughs> and it fixed itself. So um, he ended up uh, getting picked up into the astronaut program as part of the new nine, which is, you know, the second astronaut group, astronaut group number two. Like I said before, he flew on four flights. We're going to go pretty quick through here because everybody knows Jim Lovell. He flew on Gemini 7 with Frank Borman. They were in space for two weeks, 14 days. Like that was insane. And they basically proved that it was doable. They also, they were the, the passive rendezvous target for Gemini 6A. And that was the first crude uh, rendezvous in space, which was of course super important to prove that you could do lunar orbit rendezvous, even though they, I don't think they had settled on lunar orbit rendezvous at that point, but still a, a really important thing to get us to the moon. Then he flew on Gemini 12 with Buzz Aldrin. Um, they did a bunch of EVAs. Um, they did a rendezvous and docking uh, with an Agena, and they basically proved that humans can work in space and do things outside of the spacecrafting and get work done. Very important. Um, and then Apollo 8, which is on my mind recently, it was this insane, this insane mission where they basically decided to go to the moon and went in four months. Um, super risky, super bold, and a very, very important stepstone to landing on the moon. You could say it was the first time that we you know, quote unquote, beat the Russians. They got uh, something into orbit first. They got a person into orbit first. They got uh, robotic vehicles to the moon first. They took photos from the far side of the moon first. Um, but the Americans got people into orbit around the moon first. And that, that was kind of the first big stepping stone. And it, it was really important to um, accomplishing the Apollo program because so much of it was how we think of ourselves, uh, both as Americans and, and humans. Um, and they did 10 orbits around the moon, um, which is pretty, pretty insane that they didn't just do a flyby. They entered into orbit and they actually occupied two different orbits. They captured and then went up to, uh, or then went down to a low circular orbit. Uh, and then of course, uh, I think the first mission that people think of when they hear Jim Lovell is Apollo 13, you know, it was supposed to be the second landing on the moon and it's, you know, this amazing movie that has a couple of flaws, but not too many. And of course, Apollo 13 features the best known space hack of all time. Very, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a series of space hacks, but very, very, very cool. So the reason the clue mentioned a restaurant, there was this restaurant in Lake Forest called Levels of Lake Forest. Uh, they closed in 2005. They were in operation from 99 to 2005. And um, it seriously was the Lovell family when it opened a restaurant. And I think that is just so cool. Uh, but anyway, they were just off of 43 at the intersection of uh, 43 and Everett, which I, I guess I mentioned because like I, I know that area, you know, like I, I used to drive past there all the time on the way to work in Deerfield. Like I literally drove past this restaurant and didn't know what it was, but they're, they're closed. But his son, Jay Lovell, has got a restaurant that's closer to the shore um, called Jay Lovell's, um, which I'm hoping I'll, I'll get to visit at some point. Um, by all accounts, it's like actually 
a, a good restaurant, you know, nice uh, American comfort food. Um, Levels of Lake Forest actually had a ton of memorabilia and, you know, like sign stuff on the walls and Jim Lovell would stop by every once in a while. And now uh, Jay Levels is much cleaner and it's not closely associated with the Lovell family, but it's still, you know, still his son. So there you go. That's the clue for last week. We have another clue, of course. Next week in 1960, the clue is hurricanes aren't the only things that spin. And uh, Sam Moore in the chat is disqualified because he actually helped me pick uh, this event. Well, apart from Sam Moore, if you think you know what the answer to this uh, might be, go ahead and give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. We have some more news about the small site deployment issue that Soyuz had last year. So I guess, Ben, maybe just uh, catch us back up on exactly what happened. It was an upper stage issue, right, with the deployment of a, like a whole bunch of CubeSats. I, I think this was the largest deployment of satellites by one stage in history, right? At least up until recently, because I think India beat them. Yeah, I think I think India beat them. Not record breaking. It would have been if it would have been a year earlier. So the, the main payload here was Canopus VIK, um, which I think we talked about at the time. Um, and then they had a, a secondary payload of 73 small sats. A lot of them were cube sats, but some of them weren't. And so the, the way this works is the frigate upper stage had all of the cube sats kind of bolted to it or all their dispensers. Um, so I'm not going to talk about every satellite, but I'll go over a couple of them. Um, so the bulk were 48 Planet Lab doves, which we're all pretty familiar with. Uh, there were eight Spire Global lemurs, which we sh- I-, I think we've talked about those uh, being launched from the space station. There were three geo-optic Ciceros, and then uh, I think my favorite is uh, the University of Stuttgart had a... a- vehicle called Flying Laptop, um, which, uh, quote, will give students experience in mission operations, take pictures of the Earth and look for near-Earth asteroids, validate the performance of a reconfigurable onboard computer, and demonstrate a high-speed optical infrared communications link with a German ground station during its planned two-year mission. And just the fact that they called it Flying Laptop makes me happy. But the problem is, this is what you were talking about, the problem is that a group of satellites that were all in the same deployment group were basically DOA. Um, They had communications failures and just were declared dead like a month later. And the suspicious thing here is that not only were they all deployed into the same orbit, but they were all in the same physical area on the frigate. Like they were all kind of mounted in the same area. So initially Roscosmos denied all liability. But recently, like this week, they issued a document to Astro Digital, who had a couple of uh, a couple of Earth observation satellites on board. And the document allowed them to make an insurance claim because the the thing here was if Astra Digital was at fault, they would not be able to collect their insurance policy. But if there was an issue that wasn't their fault, they would be able to to claim it. And so Roscosmos actually cooperated with them and gave them a document that said, hey, you're not at fault. There was a malfunction on the frigate. And so before we talk about what that document said, it's also worth noting that there's a Russian satellite startup who has been trying uh, to not get hosed because basically Roscosmos is demanding a refund. They 
they paid this company uh, for two satellites and the satellites aren't working. And so now they want a refund. And so that implies that it's not the frigate's fault, which is kind of insane if they are then issuing a document to somebody else that doesn't explicitly say it's their fault, but kind of implies that, implies it well enough that uh, that they can collect on insurance policies. So still uh, kind of playing the, the blame game here, I guess. But anyway, so let's talk about the failure. Glav Cosmos, which is the launch company that is like a subordinate to Roscosmos, they said, according to the telemetry, an anomaly was detected in one of the frigate's low thrust engines, uh, meaning one of the reaction control thrusters. Okay, well, just to go back for a second, so you said it was DOA. Those were the words that you used for these satellites. Do you mean that these satellites themselves were just not operational or just that they did not go into the right orbit because those are right, they, two different they were things. non-operational. They were delivered into the correct orbit, which is why Roscosmos, after they deorbited the frigate, they said, okay, we're all good. Like it, it was totally, totally normal. So, so Astro Digital said that their, that their vehicles were quote in the Soyuz rocket bay with the suspected anomaly. And then they said that the malfunction quote could have generated conditions in excess of what most satellites plan for which could have fried our key electronics even systems hardened for the extremes of space um so astro digital firmly places blame on the frigate upper stage according to the article what they believe happened or what i guess uh, the people who had conducted the investigation what they think is that it was a leak of hydrazine the exact words i have here um, it was due to the ingress of decomposition products of hydrazine from one or more low thrust liquid engines used in the reactive control systems of the upper stage frigate. Okay, that seems plausible, but I guess what I'm wondering is how does how does hydrazine cause a whole bunch of satellites to just not work? I mean, it's toxic stuff, but still. Yeah, yeah. So um, the key here is decomposition products. Um, what that means is that the thruster, one of the thrusters leaked hydrazine, and then another thruster uh, successfully fired and ignited all the hydrazine. Okay, that makes more sense. So ingress ingress of, of decomposition products means they got slammed with an explosion quickly moving gases as as the hydrazine um you know d- did its thing so yeah that that can totally create an environment that's hostile to tiny little s- satellites you know like <laughs> that that'll do it <laughs> that's that's quite the euphemism to say an ingress of decomposition products i mean yeah. really yeah because i was thinking it was just i mean hydrazine is highly volatile so it makes sense that you know it would have ignited but the way that it's worded that's a little bit misleading it's a fantastic description of what happened yes if we're being technical okay anyway so all this all this kind of was confirmed recently when you know glev cosmos basically said yeah that we detected an anomaly so uh, i figured it was a good time to talk about it that yeah that's that's what happened. So how many satellites were there that were lost? Like nine or ten, something like that. I don't think anybody's given us an exact count, but I know it's at least nine. Okay. So that's that's about all I have. Well, at least that explains that failure. Do you want to move on to the next one? Because uh, our next news topic is also a <laughs> post-accident analysis, I guess. So uh, let's talk about SpaceX now um, and NASA's investigation into the failure of CRS-7. So this was uh, two years ago, I guess, a little bit further back in 2015. So that was, I guess, three years ago now. This is uh, the failure that involved the upper stage. It was a suspected strut failure that was holding down a liquid helium tank that was sitting within the liquid oxygen tank of that upper stage. That was the conclusion that SpaceX came to. I think that we all think that that makes sense. And NASA has since, has now 
concluded with its investigation and it also came to the same conclusion but there are some slight differences and you can kind of see how this doesn't quite paint SpaceX as being completely blameless which I guess was never the claim to begin with because if it's your rocket and something goes wrong you are ultimately responsible but uh, SpaceX their claim was that this was a faulty strut that this was a manufacturing defect and it was supposed to withstand loads of what 10,000 pounds but it snapped at about 2,000 because as the G loads increased as it ascended to orbit that's what happened it just simply couldn't hold pulled down that liquid helium tank and uh, it ruptured. So NASA, after their investigation, they've really brought a lot of attention to something that, because I was always wondering exactly how this whole apparatus works. Apparently the fault might be specifically with a stainless steel eye bolt that sits at the very end of that strut. So that is how the strut is attached to the liquid helium tank, because I was never clear on that because you hear about the quote-unquote strut, but I don't know what it actually looks like. So that's what they think the problem was. SpaceX thinks the same thing. Um, it's just that they came to two different conclusions as to why something went wrong with it. This eyeball, I want to talk about its shape real quick because it is kind of a, it's something that's, that's a little hard to imagine. So um, if you think about um, this carbon overwrapped helium bottle, which, you know, kind of looks like a, a pill shape. Um, it's got four struts, two on the top and two on the bottom. And those four struts connect to the side wall of the second stage because it's inside uh, the tank. And then there's a fifth strut that goes straight downward and connects to the bottom. I believe it's the bottom. It might just be lower down on the on the side wall. Um, but this strut is uh, tapered at both ends um, so it's thicker in the middle, um, and then it tapers down to uh, a narrower section on each end. And in each section is uh, sort of a flange, but then there is this bolt that goes in it, and the bolt has an eye hole. It's it's like one of those uh, metal hooks uh, that you might screw into uh, the ceiling to hang something from, like a, like a potted plant. So basically, a screw that has a loop at the end, kind of like a coat hanger, if the if the hanger was a complete loop. Um, and in this case, it's obviously a much more rigid construction. Um, it's all one piece. It's not a not a piece that's wrapped around. So the the hole kind of goes uh, sideways relative to the direction that that it threads in, um, and then that connects to the bottom of the helium bottle. There's uh, a bit that goes through it. So, you know, a a good way to kind of construct this, you can build the strut and then just attach it to the bottle. You don't have to do any welding to the bottle or anything. So yeah, so so that that eye bolt was improperly installed or was it was there a fault in the in the item the nasa investigation concluded that that is a possibility that maybe it had been improperly installed which was a conclusion that spacex i guess for obvious reasons you know did not come to uh they said it was simply a manufacturing defect but nasa and i don't know what grounds they have for saying so but they said you know it might not have been properly installed but i mean i guess that's always a possibility with something i don't know if there's any evidence of that however and then further this might not have even been an aerospace grade bolt right that is certain so this was just a, a quote-unquote industrial grade uh, strut and bolt which um and i mean we don't know who the third-party manufacturer is because spacex did not disclose that information but um i guess this is something that you could just you know buy off the shelf without too much difficulty
difficulty. I don't know how expensive they would be, but this is not an actual like aerospace grade piece of hardware and it was not tested under those conditions. And that's something that I believe we kind of already knew because had they tested it, this would not have happened. Or at least it would have been less likely to have happened. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the the issue here is that the yield strength was was too low, right? It, it sheared quicker than it should have. Um, it, it should have been able to stretch a little bit and instead it was more delicate, which I mean, that's that's metallurgy, right? Like metallurgy is so difficult. And that's why, you know, space grade items look just like consumer or industrial grade parts, but they have much, much better properties. You know, they're they're stronger. They won't, they'll fail in better ways. And, you know, it's the margins are so much slimmer, especially on the way to orbit, right? Like this happened just after max Q, I think. Yeah, it was around the two minute mark. So I guess that's just after yeah. max Q, I believe, or yeah. right around it. Yeah. So, you know, it, th- this is like one of the hardest parts of, of the flight and that's when it failed. Yeah. And, and Dan, Dan is pointing out correctly. I don't, I guess I didn't make this clear is that to be a space grade part, like, you know, you can have these differences from consumer parts, right? Where the metallurgy is actually different, but what makes something space grade space grade is that it's, it's been tested to those limits, right? So you can take this industrial part and say, okay, well, this is just the right shape. It's just the right price. Let's go ahead and use it on a rocket. Well, you can't do that until you know that it's going to be able to withstand not only the forces that you're seeing, but you know, your actual, your above and beyond uh, tolerance limits that you set for the vehicle. And so, I mean, like that, that adds expense to every part. And in some cases, it's okay to, to make those changes. Like using Cat5 cable on the Falcon 9 seems like a great trade off. Like it's, you know, they have not qualified this stuff for for space you know, or at least when they started now now they certainly have but you know they they use these cheaper these cheaper components because you know that's that's the way to get to space cheaper is to spend less money but you also take these risks and i don't understand why they wouldn't have qualified something that was so integral i mean it's literally inside your liquid fuel tank or your uh, liquid oxygen tank like you just gotta you, you gotta get this stuff done and uh, dan in the chat points out that if you're buying something space grade it's usually 10 to 100 times the cost of a non-space grade item. So you know, we're talking about serious cost increases here. And I imagine SpaceX, just because they're very innovative, they probably have since found out ways to test this stuff themselves. So um, they can verify the reliability of the product without having to go through some other third party who says this is space grade and it's going to cost you 10 to 100 times more just because you know we can put that label on there. Right now, NASA is satisfied with SpaceX. They have cleared up the issues. I, I don't think that that there's any outstanding issues that they have with the Falcon 9. But anyway, yeah, that's the update on the SpaceX uh, CRS-7 failure. All right, some short and sweet, and we just got two. And what's our first one this week, Ben? Yeah, Grace One re-enters after 16 years in orbit. So the Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment, or GRACE, was a pair of twin spacecraft named GRACE One and GRACE Two. Launched in 2002, they were operated by NASA and the German Aerospace Center with the goal of measuring gravitational anomalies on Earth down to a few micrometers. After experiencing issues, the GRACE Two spacecraft was decommissioned and re-entered last December. Grace 
GRACE 1's orbit finally decayed on March 10th. The GRACE experiment was a huge success, outlasting its planned five-year mission, and a follow-on mission called GRACE FO is already scheduled for launch later this year. And next up, Aerojet Rocketdyne has delivered to Boeing the crew module's re-entry thrusters. Boeing technicians will integrate the 12MR-104J engines into the CST-100. The engines are designed to be used up to 10 times. The engines use hydrazine monopropellant and each one produces 45 kilograms of thrust. Other engines yet to be integrated are the launch abort, service module RCS, and service module orbital maneuvering and attitude control engines, all of which will also be provided by Aerojet Rocketdyne. So that's cool. CST-100 is slowly coming together. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. We got two corrections from one listener. As per usual, it's Ben Haller. Yeah, so the first one is he says that Shuttle Centaur never flew. I don't I know we talked about it as a project, but anyway, um, so this is really cool. He says uh Shuttle Centaur never flew, and he provided an article, an Ars Technica article, that actually talks about the history of Shuttle Centaur. And it's a really, really good article. So I wanted to include it here and you know, clear up uh, any mistakes we might have said on air. Also, we uh, boy, I said that they weren't able to ignite the engines on the Falcon Heavy Center core quick enough. And then like just after the show, I found out that actually, no, they were running out of T-Teb, um, the, the uh, pyrophoric igniter. I think it's pyrophoric. And so the uh, the outer engines weren't able to ignite, but the center engine was able to ignite. So yeah, that's that's why it was a single engine landing instead of a two engine landing or a three engine landing, right? Uh, yeah, 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 right. A single engine landing instead of a a, a, tr- a three engine landing, triple engine landing, uh, a one a one three one landing, which is uh, what the fuel remains required and they they weren't able to do that and then he also pointed out uh, because i think i had mentioned something about the cold gas thrusters being used to orient the first stages it comes back down but obviously those aren't really used low in the atmosphere that's what the grid fins are for which is why it has them so yeah he just pointed out well they they are used i mean we've well they're used which one was it that landed and had the was it jason three where the leg collapsed and it like and yeah, you could see the the cold gas thrusters firing. Well, I guess at that point, uh, the grid fins are obviously not useful. So yeah, once yes. it stopped, it, it's worth mentioning that the hierarchy here is is kind of important. So once you're in the landing regime, like in low in the atmosphere, the gimbling on the ma- on the center engine is the most prevalent force. Then the grid fins, because grid fins stop being super helpful once you come out of the hypersonic region uh, and the, the transonic region. Once you're slower than the speed of sound they help they're not as effective as like wings would be um, and then the smallest there is the, the cold gas thrusters well do you think that you could use the grid fins um, not necessarily for their aerodynamic properties but just to sort of stabilize yourself you know kind of like the a flap. tightrope yeah kind of like a tightrope walker might do I mean <laughs> no, it stands the reason so. you, don't, you don't think so I, I mean I think it, I, mean, it, I mean yeah obviously there, there's some force there but there, there are two, <laughs> two problems with flapping those grid fins around first uh, they're <laughs> not they're not super heavy their actuation range is very small so you're not going to be able to get too much torque out of them and then finally it is really really hard to flap them in a meaningful way because you have to depressurize and then repressurize the whole system to get them to move up and down so you it would be 
really hard to, to time that properly. Well, it seems like when I've seen videos of the first stage coming down that they look like they're moving more than I would expect them to. Like, oh, wow, they can really, you know, kind of like turn, twist and all that. Um, but yeah, they're probably not capable of the kind of reaction time that would actually be necessary. But it's a cool I love thought. that image though, David. Yeah. So I don't know if anybody remembers uh, Splashdown Bingo, but it's a thing and we've we helped out with one in the past. Uh, we didn't do too much about it, but we announced it. So this time around, um, we are doing a splashdown bingo for Tiangong One, which is super cool. I think the podcast is going to put up the prizes unless somebody else wants to jump in. Right now, I'm thinking there are going to be two prizes: one for where where the space station re-enters or impacts, whichever is whatever amount of resolution we get one for location one for time and i don't know what the prizes are going to be probably a, a book or um, a model maybe maybe we'll do a 3d printed model but if you are interested in playing we would love for you to throw your hat in the ring so so right now we're looking at uh, march 30th through april 10th is what the re-entry is looking like and let me give you a little hint Tiangong is not on a super high inclination orbit, as in it's not going to land in Canada or yeah. Russia. I believe the farthest north it travels is like 35. I'm reading that its inclination is actually 43 degrees. So anywhere. 43. Between, yeah. There you go. So so pick something under 43 degrees. It spends more time at higher and lower inclinations uh, just because that's the way that a sine wave works or a pseudo sine wave, I guess. And there are definitely some charts out there that are going to help you uh, make a choice, but don't wait too long because the longer you wait, the less likely it'll be that your selection is open. But the way to enter is we're going to do a new thing before we like had people guessing on a forum and then somebody was writing it down and we were thinking about building an actual dedicated website, but we're lazy and didn't do that. Um, so it's going to be on a Google Docs spreadsheet. There are going to be two tabs. The first one is the rules and directions, and the second tab is for guesses. And basically, um, we're just going to have people put down their own guesses. It'll highlight if it's a duplicate, and um, every once in a while, we'll have an adjudicator come through and copy down guesses if there are any um, disputes or, you know, if somebody made a mistake or if somebody changed something, that's fine. Google Sheets or Google Drive has got a really good revision slash versioning system. And so uh, we'll we'll be able to look back into the history and that'll kind of be the the final word is, you know, whatever gets put into the version. So, you know, there, there may be some little issues there. Like, I don't know if it, you know, if somebody changes it really quick, maybe is not going to get entered into the versioning, but we're, we're going to go based on that. Um, Sam Moore asks if we're going to get a precise splashdown location. And I, yeah, I think we're going to get something pretty close unless it's out in the middle of the ocean. Then in that case, we'll go with the best guess. You know, we're, we're going to take whatever the most precise final word is, and we're going to try to apply that to this. It's statistically more likely to land in the ocean just because there's more water covering the planet than there is land. <laughs> right. But other right. than that, yeah. there's no reason to suspect that it might re-enter over an ocean because... Uh, I, I think they're going to try to put it down in the ocean. I mean, that's kind of... 
that's kind of the polite thing to do is to put it down in in the Pacific. Do they have any means of doing so? Oh, are they are they completely out of control? I thought they had they had a little bit of influence they could have over it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't think they have any reaction mass left. Well, there there you go. So we're looking at something completely random. Okay, so if you want to enter, um, go to the orbitalmechanics.com slash splashdown, and that will redirect you to the uh, to the Google Sheets document. Feel free to share this. Um, at some point, we'll put updated prizes on there once we figure out what we're going to do. And uh, yeah, please do share this with everybody. Go ahead and retweet it. Like seriously, if you want to tweet a link to our show just because it's a short URL, that's fine. If you want to take the Google Sheets and run it through um, Bitly or something and, and share that, that's totally fine. I'm just doing this because it's easy for me to do um, as far as link shortening goes. And yeah, get as many people involved as you can because this is always really fun. Um, we'll make posts on Reddit and Twitter and all those good places. All right, so now we're going to move on to a brand new segment. We've never done this before, and I'm really excited. So I've been calling this segment the mystery guest segment in my head. I think we might need to come up with a more spacey name. Uh, Yeah, I I talked to a couple people, and we came up with some interesting ideas. But I guess we'll settle on a name. If anybody listening has got a good idea uh, for a kind of spacey name for the segment, go ahead and shoot it in, and we'll consider it. So in this segment, we have a guest on the line. I know who the guest is, and David has no idea. So what we're going to do is we're going to play... We're going to play a quick guessing game. This guest has done a a specific thing recently. Um, In the future, we may just, you know, have you guess their job or uh, maybe even the identity of the person. But our our guest has done a specific thing recently, and you're going to have to guess what that thing is using only yes and no questions. (laughs) So it's like 20 questions, although not necessarily limited to 20. Yeah, and there'll be be clues along the way if we need to kind of push you in the right direction. Yeah, that might be necessary so um so i'm so i'm supposed to guess the what our guest has specifically done because i thought it was the job that i was supposed to guess but this is a specific event in this case it's it's a specific thing that this that this person has done so the best introduction we could do so far is this is robert hi robert how you doing hello how are you guys doing (laughs) pretty good all right so normally we would like talk about who you are and what you do but obviously we can't do that so david i guess go ahead and ask your first question let's just open up with some general questions i guess uh do you work mostly indoors or out of doors i work mostly indoors do you work on a computer most of the time although i guess everyone does yes i do but to be fair this is a job that you could do off of a computer as well that's correct you could even do it outside if you wanted to do it. Is this thing that you have done, is it in some way being currently, uh, let's say, marketed? Yes, it is. Is the final product, if you will, is that a piece of software? No, it's not. So it involves, more specifically, hardware, something that uh, you could touch. <laughs> well, in this day and age, you never know, but yes... Definitely something you can touch. Is this thing something that would exist in space or on the ground? I would say it exists primarily on the ground. Does it involve communication? Yes. Does it involve lasers? No, not at all. Is uh, is this something being used or that will be used by uh, NASA? I think it will be appreciated by NASA, if nothing else. Maybe a good question to ask is, would this thing be used by individuals? All right, well, let's go with that. Yes, very much so. Does it involve satellite communication? Um, very remotely, if at all. Marion in the chat is guessing that you are building receivers for SpaceX's Starlink. 
And that is way off base. Way off base, but that's a good idea for my next project. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. Is it likely that I know what this is? I would say it's almost certain. Would you say that your job is that of an engineer? No. You're going to kick yourself once we get closer. Uh, Marion in the chat asks, do you make art? Yes, I do. Is it something that is visible to a large number of people at one time? It could be. Is there currently a, a website for this thing? Yes. Is this something that you might consume as a product in a visual way? Yes, but I'll also give you another clue and say you can consume it in an auditory way as well. Is it a video of some sort? No. Uh, Marin in the chat asks... Do you make digital art as opposed to something tangible? I make both, and they're identical. Is it a book? Yes, it is. Okay, so if we've gotten to the point where we know that it's a book, I don't think you're going to be able to guess the specific book necessarily, um, but if you can guess the topic of the book, uh, that'll be good enough for me. Is this a nonfiction book about space flight? Yes. Like the in the chat has got a good question. Is it historically focused or modern? Historically focused. Does it involve the Apollo program? Yes, it does. Uh, well, there's famously Apollo 13. Does it involve that? No. Does it primarily focus on the early Apollo missions? Let's say one through five or something? Not one through five. Is it about one specific Apollo mission? Yes, it is. Is it Apollo 11? It's not, but it is about an Apollo mission that many consider to be the boldest, most daring, and riskiest mission NASA ever ran. Is it about Apollo 8? Yes, it is. You got it. This is Robert Curson. He wrote a book about Apollo 8. Okay. What is the title of the book since I've guessed it? I guess we can just go ahead and move on yes. to that. Is it just called Apollo 8? No, it's called Rocket Men, and it's the story of Apollo 8. It's um, a wonderful story, and in, in my opinion, it tells the story of the greatest mission that NASA ever run in that era. It's um, coming up on the 50th anniversary of this historic flight, which was mankind's first journey away from Earth and first arrival at the moon. The book is, the full title is Rocket Men, The Daring Odyssey of Apollo 8 and the Astronauts Who Made Man's First Journey to the Moon. Okay, so I don't know where, but I know I've heard about this book and I know I've heard it discussed. I cannot for the life of me recall where. Um, I've seen, it might have been a YouTube video, I don't know, but actually, yes, as it turns out, I'm familiar with, I mean, I have not read the book. I know I've seen this somewhere. I, I linked I linked to it in our Slack um, specifically because Robert's doing a really, really cool book signing in Chicago. Can you tell us about that, Robert? Yeah. On uh, April 5th, which is two days after the book goes on sale, um, all three Apollo 8 astronauts, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders are going to be joining me at the Museum of Science and Industry to celebrate the launch of the book and the 50th anniversary of Apollo 8. And it turns out that the Apollo 8 command module that they took to the moon is on display at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. So it's going to be a very nice uh, event and a very rare opportunity to get together with a full Apollo crew. Cool. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And as somebody who used to live in Chicago, I am absolutely sick with envy that I no longer live in Chicago and that I can't attend attend this this panel. So like your book um, starts with kind of short like early life biographies of each of these astronauts. And then by about a third of the way into the book, uh, you are stuck into Apollo 8 and the, the preparations for it. So I guess I'd like to know what, what it was like um, specifically working on that first part of the book where you are kind of retelling personal stories that have, you know, we, we've heard a lot of these stories before, but some of the stories in the book I hadn't really heard before, um, or at least not 
kind of portrayed in such a personal way. I'm assuming you interviewed these astronauts, right? Yes, at great length in person, all three of them. And they were incredibly generous with their time and their energy with me. It was really the only way to get the true story of Apollo 8 was to, to really sit down and spend time with these men and their wives and families. Yeah. And that's one of the great things is that you really talk about their families as well. And specifically, there was a story, who was it? I think it was Valerie who was super scared and did not expect her husband to come home. And so she asked somebody at NASA what the chances were. And they said 50-50 because they thought that she was talking about a successful mission, not return home of the astronauts. Right. That was Susan Borman, actually, Frank's wife. And when she heard the answer, which she interpreted to be that they had a 50-50 chance, she was extremely relieved about that because she was convinced there was no chance that Frank would ever come home from this mission. And she wasn't crazy in thinking so. I mean, Apollo 8 was undertaking an incredible um, universe of risks in running this mission. It was planned and executed in four months, not the usual 12 to 18 months. All kinds of things had to go right that had never been tested before. This was only going to be the third flight of the Saturn V rocket. The first two flights had been unmanned, uh, the second of which had been a near disaster. So this was the, going to be the first time men had ever been put aboard. And the, the test before had been almost a catastrophe. They were going without a lunar lander, which meant they had no backup engine in case their primary engine at the moon failed. So there's all kinds of uh, problems. Everything was being done for the first time. Uh, when the plan was conceived in a rush just four months before they launched, uh, NASA didn't know very much about how they were going to pull this mission off. Everything had to be rushed. So when Susan Borman was terrified of this flight, she had pretty good reason to be. Not just that, but she was fresh in her memory, the um, tragedy of the Apollo 1 fire, which had occurred less than two months earlier, in which one of Frank's best friends, uh, Ed White, and the husband of Susan's best friend, uh, had been killed. So this was a very, very frightening thing for the people uh, who were standing by and watching it. And this was... Um... And I'm sure most listeners know, but this was the first time that uh, the human beings had, had ever traveled beyond low Earth orbit. So this was like just the very first time leaving uh, that comfort zone. Right. Before Apollo 8, I believe the world altitude record was 853 miles. And here they're proposing to go 240,000 miles to a new world to be captured by uh, the gravitational influence of a, of a different body. Nobody had ever done it before. They had There had been probes sent, but to send men is a much, much different proposition. And so uh, again, everything was being done for the first time, and it was being done in a hurry, and it was being done in a hurry for important reasons. So they had to go, um, but nobody knew if it would work. And when you read the uh, the commentary by other astronauts or NASA legends, even today, they'll tell you about how significant Apollo 8 was and how uh, it stands out in their minds in a different way than almost any other flight. They were going at Christmas at the end of 1968. And when NASA's uh, chief, James Webb, heard about the plan, he said, are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? And in addition to all the risks in the first they were taking, he pointed out rightly that if something, anything went wrong and these guys didn't come back, nobody would look at the moon or at Christmas ever the same way again. So uh, it was being done on uh, an incredibly dramatic time and at the end of a very fractious, terrible year in American history as well. So, Robert, before we let you go, uh, I, I would like to ask you a question. What what was the most surprising thing that you learned during your research? Because, you know, you, I'm sure you went into this with a, a lot of knowledge about uh, Apollo in general and Apollo 8 specifically. 
Um, but, but what do you think was the best or most surprising thing that you learned along the way? Well, I think there were two things that really stood out to me. One was the incredible importance of these three wives and what they meant to their husbands and to the success of this mission. I think it's safe to say that these guys could not have pulled off this unbelievable flight without the support of their wives and family. That was uh, something I wasn't expecting going in. The other was just how important the battle against the Soviets to win the space race was in pushing Apollo forward and pushing this mission forward. You know, I had always believed that the United States was under great pressure to fulfill John F. Kennedy's promise to the nation to land on a, a man on the moon and return him safely by the end of the decade. And that certainly was operative uh, in the minds and hearts of uh, NASA. But it turns out that beating the Soviets um, was a huge factor here and that there was top secret intelligence that indicated that the Soviets were capable of sending the first men in history around the moon by the end of 1968. And I think that had a great deal to do with pushing NASA to make this otherwise impossible flight that turned out to be a beautiful, incredible flight with some of the most moving moments. They made a broadcast on Christmas Eve while they were orbiting the moon, uh, broadcast to nearly a third of the world's population that to this day resonates and stirs people when they hear it. I won't ruin uh, for people who don't know what they said, but it's absolutely historic. And, and again, and one of the, the most famous photographs was taken on this flight called Earthrise, which is maybe, maybe the most famous photograph ever taken. So a lot came out of this and it did set the stage for the moon landing. So, but the Soviets in the race to beat uh, them in the space race and to defeat them in this really existential battle uh, was uh, primary in this, in this story. So your, your book is being released next month in, in April. Is that right? Yes. On April 3rd, it'll go on sale everywhere. In the show notes, I'll have a link to the Eventbrite page for this amazing panel um, in Chicago. I'll also have a link to the Amazon page where you can pre-order. And then I've also got robertcurson.com where you can see other places that it'll be on sale. Um, are there any other links or Twitter pages or anything you'd like us to include? Well, you could just go to my website, robertcurson, K-U-R-S-O-N.com. And uh, you get all kinds of information, all kinds of extras there. And again, the, you know, the book's called Rocket Men. I think anybody with an interest in space or even just a really, really good story will appreciate it. It's, it's truly one of our great American stories. Awesome. Well, thank you for, um, thank you for being our first mystery guest. Uh, I appreciate you sitting through a, a much longer process than either of us expected to go through. I appreciate you taking the time putting up with my horribly ill-pointed questions. I thought they were great questions, and I love the idea that I'm a mystery man. I never thought of myself that way, but I will forever on. Thanks a bunch, Robert. Great. Thank you guys so much. Let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We just got one launch and one other thing. So the launch that we have is on March 21st. That's the launch of a Soyuz, and that is for launch to the ISS the crew complement on this is Andrew J. Foistel, Richard Arnold, and Oleg Artemyev. That is Soyuz MS-08. Um, and that is launching March 21st at 1744 UTC or 144 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. So it's an easy time to watch that if it's available online, which I believe it will be, although I don't see any links provided in spaceflight yeah, now. Yeah, so, Soyuz launches are always broadcast. Yeah. If nothing else, you can watch it on NASA TV. Speaking of NASA TV, later on that day, you'll be able to watch the docking and all that good stuff. So on Friday, March 23rd at 3 p.m. Eastern time, uh, they're going to start the coverage for the docking. Uh, the docking is scheduled at 3.41 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm sorry, uh, Eastern Daylight Time. And then later, let's see, 
uh, 5 p.m. They're going to start the coverage for the hatch opening and welcoming ceremony, and the hatch opening is scheduled at 5.35 p.m. Eastern Time. Also, another cool thing that's coming up is we have a spacewalk. The spacewalk is happening after our next show, but the briefing is happening on March 27th, which is the day that our next episode comes out. So we're going to cover it now. So Tuesday, March 27th at 2 p.m. Eastern time, they're going to be doing the preview briefing uh, on NASA TV, which is always so good. So go ahead and, and watch that. So those are your upcoming space flight events. And with that said, let's do over the show and cue the music, most of which is brought to you by Ronald Jenkins. Check him out at RonaldJenkins.com and some of which is also brought to you by Tim Dodd, the Everyday Astronaut. If you liked this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks to our $5 and up Patreon supporters in the Ground Control chat room listening to the show live. You can connect with us on Twitter and Reddit at Orbital Podcast. You can send questions and comments to info at theorbitalmechanics.com. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. All right, so that's it, and we will see you in one week on orbit until then later goodbye everyone.